When a group of friends grows unusually close to one another, people sometimes refer to them dismissively as a mutual admiration society. A spiritually healthy church is never a community of friends who merely admire one another. We're not a mutual admiration society. A healthy church is, however, what we might call a mutual edification society. Reigning with absolute authority from heaven's throne, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is actively saving a people of His own possession. He redeems enslaved sinners from the world. And He forms them into distinctive communities of believers with the intention that the members of those assemblies will build one another up in the faith and will stimulate growth in one another and in their relationship with Christ. Have you been born again? Have you trusted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of your sin and to grant you eternal life? If you can say, yes, by the grace of God, that's me, then hear me. Jesus Christ did not save you to leave you alone. He did not save you merely to rescue you from the judgment of hell that you deserve, but Jesus saved you in order to change you. One of the distinct purposes of His electing love is to progressively deliver us from the dominion of sin in our lives. He saved us to transform our affections. That we would love what God loves and hate what God hates, heeding His Word and His counsel. So at least in your mind's eye, look around you today. Jesus saved people seated around you in order to progressively deliver them from sin's power in this life. And what is more, Jesus has placed you in this assembly to actively contribute to the spiritual growth of others and to receive such stimulation from others. This is the Sovereign Lord's purpose. This is why the church is formed. Now if we're going to even begin to fulfill Christ's lofty purposes for this assembly, we must recognize what a mutual edification community looks like and we need to give ourselves to becoming that. It won't just happen, but it comes in cooperation with the purposes of Christ as we strive to be the people that He wants us to be living our life together. This was, in fact, the Apostle Paul's keen interest in the Thessalonian church, that they would become such a church. We witness this throughout this first letter, Paul to the Thessalonians, if you'll make your way there, and let's look first of all at chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. We witness this throughout this letter, this intense desire for these new believers in Christ to join together and to mutually edify one another and to grow in their faith. I'd like you to look here at the, the amazing salvation, the evidence of salvation in their life, but also coupled in the apostles' words to the need for their growth to continue forward and to develop. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day among you. And we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the Gospel of God. There's the messenger delivering the Gospel. He says, You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. 
Here again, talking about the messenger. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. To walk in a manner worthy of God. This was His intense interest in them. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and notice it and supply what is lacking in your faith. I want to get with you again. He's writing them here. I want to get with you again that I might supply what is lacking in your faith. They were an exemplary church. He is encouraging them and complimenting them in their walk with Christ. But he says, I want to supply what's lacking, that you would grow in your faith. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live to please God, just as you are doing, notice it there again, you are pleasing God, but I pray that you will do this more and more. That you will continue to grow in your capacities to please God. Now a small aspect, but a significant aspect of that growth is their ability as a church to edify one another. In their relationships with one another, on the far end of it, not to kill each other, but on the far end of that, rather to build one another up in the faith. To deepen one another in the Gospel. Chapter 4 and verse 18, we see this in light of this eschatological section, these end time events, in light of the fact that Christ will rapture His people, will return, and the dead will rise again. He says, therefore encourage one another with these words, 4.18. Chapter 5.11, continuing on the day of the Lord, at the end of it, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. They were doing that. They were responding to the message of God and to His truth, but they were to take that truth and continue to build one another up with it and in it. Now flowing from that discussion of the day of the Lord, of our accounting before Christ, the central matter now as Paul brings the book to close is found in chapter 5 and verse 23. I think this is really the hinge on which verses 12 through 28 turn. This is the significant closing. And in fact, all of the book really locks into this purpose that he states here in verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you. There it is, that you would grow more and more, that you would build one another up in the faith, that I would supply what is lacking in your faith. That He would sanctify you. That is, that He would make you distinctive and holy, Christ-like. That He may sanctify you completely and May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the central matter here of these closing thoughts, to sanctify you completely in light of the fact that we will have a final accounting before Christ. So then, in these closing words, we get a glimpse of what a holy life looks like in the context of a healthy church that is building itself up in love. What does it look like? 
The first characteristic of a growing body of believers is this, verses 12 and 13, a right attitude toward spiritual leadership. A right attitude toward spiritual leadership. Think of his love for them, his discipling them to become the people that he wants them to be in Christ, and says to them within your community, this is vital. There must be a right attitude toward spiritual leadership. Verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Do you desire to be a holy follower of Christ? If that is the case, then God's counsel is that you respect the spiritual leaders of the assembly. This word respect, literally, is to know. It's a Greek word, to know them. Uh, Here, I think, probably best translated to recognize them. Respect is bound up in this knowledge of them. But respect is covered there in verse 13. So I think here the idea is more to recognize that there are spiritual leaders among you. You will respect them, but you respect them as spiritual leaders, recognizing that they watch over the body. Paul does not name these leaders, does he? and say who they are, he doesn't even name their office. It's interesting. I don't think we should draw the conclusion that he has some sort of different leadership situation in view here. The New Testament is very clear on what that leadership is. The Apostle Paul, Acts 14, 20-23, churches had been formed, he goes back through those areas, and they established leaders in those churches that were started. They're referred to as elders there. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 As you are doing your work, Paul writes to Titus, establish elders over the churches. We have qualifications for these elders, overseers, pastors. So it's not a mystery as to who these leaders are. And Paul's not writing about some different form of leadership here in Thessalonica. But he is choosing not to emphasize the office, but rather to emphasize what these people do. What is their function within the assembly? And we notice here that in the original text, there's three participles governed by one article. That simply means this isn't three different people, but it's three descriptors of what these pastors do within the congregation. What is that? Verse 12, laboring among you. This is the first participle, and it describes how they work. They're laboring among you. We could translate it, recognize the ones who are toiling to the point of exhaustion among you. Now, if a pastor is doing his work, he's a tired man, at least at times. There's times for rest. But pastoral ministry is not a position of privilege or of ease. It's not a vacation. Shepherding souls is hard work. If we do it the way that Christ intends, it is difficult work. It involves long hours and deep disappointments, mind numbing frustrations, exhausting problems, and then there's the vitality sapping anxiety over the spiritual health of straying members of the flock. It's hard work. It is a labor. Paul did not hesitate to speak of this reality. This wasn't just shop talk among elders. He said this to the church, chapter 2 and verse 9, we read it, and of course the circumstances were a bit unique, but he said, remember brothers, our labor and toil. 
we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now he's laboring there to actually work in, to bring in income so that he can evangelize these people. And he reminds them of that. But we see whether that was the kind of toil he was doing or not, that in the work of shepherding souls, there's an effort that has to go forward there that will exhaust. These are individuals who are laboring among you. They are secondly over you in the Lord. Again, there's some struggles here with the English translation, but recognize these who are laboring over you and are over you. The Greek word can be translated two ways. It can be translated to rule or to lead, or it can be translated to care or, and protect. The problem is in the New Testament it's used both ways. And in the context where you find this single word, you can determine whether it means protect or means to lead. It's interesting, just a side note, but the NIV translates it, who are over you in the Lord, leadership. The TNIV, as it is updated, translates it, who care for you in the Lord. Now someone might look at that and say, I I smell a rat there. It sounds like they're moving away from authority, which does uh, make a lot of churches happy in that translation, in that update. But in fact, the Greek word can be translated either way. The problem's not with the original text, the problem's with English. Because in the culture of that day, the term itself, they weren't seen as two separate ideas. To give leadership to someone was to care for them. To give oversight was to protect. In a client-patron Greco-Roman setting, that's what leaders do. They're there to protect people. We need a little bit of that infused in our own world, don't we, in the West right now. But if you're a leader, you're a protector. If you're a leader, you're someone who cares for other people. And think of that, how much more is that the case within the context of the local church? Where the function, the pastoral function, caring and leading are all part of the same function. That's what they do among you. They lead you with authority in such a way that is caring for your soul. That's the authority with which they've been invested. So they are over you in the sense of caring for and protecting your spiritual walk with Christ. The third participle is they admonish you. That means that in their hard work, as they are over you caring for your soul, they will use words of correction. They will use words of conviction. They will speak about what you should do and what you should not do. They will offer these words of correction that you will walk worthy of Christ. In our weakness, in our sin, we need that word of correction. We have here those who are in the assembly who labor in this way and, says Paul to these people, you are to recognize them in that place. You're to appreciate them in the place that God has given them. Do you fully appreciate, do we recognize the privilege that it is to have elders who shepherd our souls? Do we recognize the privilege of that? People willing to take the risk to correct and to encourage and to say this is what God says. Stop this. Start doing this. That's a high privilege. 
Thursday night this past week, two shepherds of this church sat in our living room and talked to our family about our walk with God. They got rather specific about our relationships with our church and asked about those relationships. They got rather specific about our relationships with one another and they challenged and encouraged and deepened us in our walk with God. Two men taking time out of their life, taking the risk to talk to us about our soul. And I thought as our time came to an end, how rich we are. How privileged is this family to have two shepherds who would care for us like that? And that is essentially Paul's point here in verse 13, isn't it? Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because they're doing that kind of work, you're to esteem them highly. You have only two options. You're saved. You're a member of this church. You're part of this assembly. You've only got two options here, really. You can heed God's counsel and choose to respect and value your elders, your deacons, in fact, the entire assembly. Or you can take up a position that puts them under the microscope of criticism, that takes them for granted, that even treats them with contempt. What are you going to do? How are you going to orient yourself to such individuals? It's a question I must ask myself as there are shepherds that look after my heart within this church. It's a question we must all ask. And I thank God for those and how many there are and how pervasively in this assembly of those who say, I thank God. I esteem them highly for the work that they're doing. You notice that's why they're to be esteemed. Why they're to be respected in this role. It's because of their work. It's not necessarily because you like them. It's certainly not because they're perfect. Every elder in this church is a man who sins and displays manifold weaknesses, and we talk to each other about those weaknesses. We're not blind to them by any means. But to a man, they are a group of shepherds who labor week in and week out in the interest of your sanctification. Let me tell you, you don't have many friends like that. You don't have many friends like that. Value this highly. Give God thanks and love them as they love you and as you do. Some years ago, it reminds me of a young woman that met with me and said she was leaving our church, and that's never a happy thing to hear. And I always try to humbly ask why and what can we learn from this. She really didn't have much to say. It just, she just couldn't really articulate it. And she worked on it, and I tried to draw her out and listen to what... She came up with one tangible thing that was very pointed and specific. She said this, people respect you an awful lot. That was her reason for leaving the church. People respect you an awful lot. And I thought as she left, well, thank God. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Isn't that what is true of a healthy church? That there's shepherds that care and love and lead and care about our souls and people respect that and appreciate it? 
I fully understand the horror of pastors who do not work hard, who do not care for the flock, who are simply serving their own selfish interests. We've probably all seen that. We know people, if we ourselves have not been hurt by that. And I'm painfully aware of my susceptibility to sin, of the susceptibility of our leaders in this church to sin, of our weaknesses as pastors and shepherds. But if you have elders that are exercising energetic watch care over your soul, striving faithfully to live as an example to the flock, and that's how they relate to you, give God thanks and choose to love them. This is nothing less than God's counsel. And be at peace with one another. He says there at the end of verse 13, I'm taking that to go with the relationship between shepherds and flock because the next verse takes us off into another discussion. At any rate, we're called to pursue peace with one another in the church. And I think there is then at verse 14 a subtle shift in the orientation. We're to have a right attitude towards spiritual leadership, but a healthy church then is also marked by right relationships with one another, which are described beginning at verse 14. How are we to relate to each other within this body? We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's the kind of relationship that we should have. That should mark our interaction with each other. You notice the phrase here in verse 14 of brothers that introduces a new topic, a shift in focus here. Admonish the idle. The word idle means those who are undisciplined or disorderly, but because of the situation in Thessalonica, many translations take it as as idle because there were individuals that were not working for reasons not entirely known. They were not busying themselves in daily labor. So Paul is saying sanctification is evidenced in one's life by disciplined labor, by being faithful to others, not leeching off of others. So if you see individuals in the congregation that aren't getting this, what are you to do? Talk behind their back? Ignore them? That's their business? Be jealous that they're somehow being supplied without working and you have to work hard? No, he says talk to them. Talk to them and admonish them. Correct them. Instruct them. You see here, those who are over the church are those who admonish, but the church itself are to be those who admonish as well. We are to encourage and instruct one another. In some cases, we even need to confront one another with sin. If there's those who are idle, instruct them. Encourage the faint-hearted. That is, we would be speaking words of comfort and encouragement to those who are tempted to give up. Help the weak, whether physically or spiritually. He doesn't differentiate here. But we are to lovingly come alongside those who struggle on life's path and to build them up and encourage them in the faith. And be patient with them all. How easy it is to become irritable with one another. How easy it is for us to become demanding. To specialize in putting people in their place. A church where spiritual growth is happening is a church where people patiently love one another lifting each other, encouraging one another, and just continuing to pour out love in their relationship. As verse 15 says, we're not to repay anyone evil for evil. This is countercultural. 
The Thessalonians, particularly, they lived in a society where revenge was seen as a virtue. And you say, how is that possible? It's really not hard to figure out. If you're wronged and you don't take vengeance, then we can't trust you as a culture to actually fight for justice. If you won't fight for justice in your own situation, you'll never be someone we can lean on as a community to fight for justice in the situation with others. And so you aren't taking vengeance on someone who's done wrong to you. We don't trust you. You're not an upstanding citizen of the culture. That's the world they lived in. Imagine these words coming from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. That's sanctification at work. A completely different way of looking at wrong We live in a different culture. It's a litigious society in which the mantra is to get even or to insist on your rights no matter what. But the society in the church is to be radically different from that. It's not getting even. It's not getting what we deserve. It's not settling scores. It's not elbowing God out of the way, but it's leaving vengeance in His hands, not retaliating. And here we are called to be fountains that flow with unceasing goodness toward everyone. Not to react in kind. Someone's not treated me properly. I'm going to treat them exactly the same way. I won't go over what they did to me, but I'm going to treat them that same way. No, we flow with goodness toward those who wrong us. That's the sanctification project Jesus is working as He conforms us into His likeness. When He was reviled, He didn't revile in return. He blessed those who cursed Him. And if we're changing into the people Christ wants us to be, then we'll be changing as those who don't retaliate but are flowing goodness toward everyone. Now this isn't a blind sense of goodness. Remember, this is the congregation that will actually instruct one another, admonish one another, correct one another when they're in sin. But it's a congregation that's been overwhelmed by the love of Christ who died for sinners, for His enemies. And we treat one another that way. Always doing good unto others, even when they wrong us. As Romans 12 put it, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our world does not get that. They don't understand that at all. It makes no sense. But here, we are a community saved by Christ who treated us that way. And so we live in this radically different way. We are being sanctified to treat others differently than we are treated. And if that's how we treat enemies, how should we treat one another in the church, in the family of Christ? Relating to spiritual leaders. Relating to one another. There's another subtle shift here beginning at verse 16. And that's a right orientation toward life. We're looking here now at attitude it seems. Verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Our church is to be characterized by the countercultural realization that God is sovereign over all things and that we can thus rejoice in all circumstances. We grieve. We suffer. We hate sin. We fight the enemy of death. But in the end, we do not merely endure such things. We rejoice in them all because God is in control. 
No matter what takes place, we rejoice in Him. So we're a rejoicing people. Not a depressed and grumpy, selfish people. We're to pray without ceasing. Unlike uh, the Muslim faith, for instance, we're not assigned specific times of prayer during the day, but we are to be those who are praying routinely and regularly throughout the day doesn't mean that we never do anything else but pray, of course, but it means that this is a pattern of life. We are those who are speaking to God in dependence upon Him in all that we do. We don't just come to church to pray. We're praying all the time. We're giving thanks all the time. A thankless spirit is characteristic of an unbelieving heart. When Jesus Christ has genuinely saved you, one of the things that changes is you start finding all kinds of reasons all over the place to give thanks to God. You're filled with thanksgiving because your world is filled with the wonder of God now. And there's all kinds of reasons to give thanks. A life of thanksgiving is the life to which Jesus has saved us. And so in all kinds of circumstances, we give thanks. Some would divide the text now at verse 19. I'm just going to continue to include it under our orientation toward life. But we have certainly a focus here that moves toward the assembly. As he says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. It's possible to take all of this as a reference to prophecies within the assembly. But I think we can take them in a more generalized way as well. And that might be Paul's intention. little sideline here. Um, some have thought this is just uh, random bullet points, sort of a flow of consciousness. Paul just randomly picking ideas here and there. There's some interesting work that's been done in comparing all of these similar lists in the New Testament and, and evidence might be uh, marshaled to say that what this really is is more of an outline for new believers. That this is the outline of a course uh, for new believers. Now we can't prove that, but there's some interesting indications that this might be the case because you have people such as Paul and Peter saying virtually the same things. You saw in Romans chapter 12 virtually the same list. And it may be that this is, in a sense, a discipleship course. So as he lays these ideas out, they may be random ideas, they may be ideas that all hold together in one idea, but they're probably something like outline points that can be filled in in time. But here, just giving those bullet points, he's looking at the sanctification of the church and says, do not quench the Spirit. The community of faith is to be one in which the conviction and instruction of the Holy Spirit is recognized, it's welcomed, and it's honored. Perhaps most specifically, Paul has in mind a troubling situation which had arisen in the worship services of the church. That leads to verse 20, do not despise prophecies. As God conveyed revelation to individuals gifted to communicate those messages, Apparently, there were people that were despising either the message or maybe the messenger. In our setting, we might say that we're exhorted here to endure with patience the preaching of God's Word in the assembly. You can orient yourself to the proclamation of God's Word as a critic who weighs words and emphasizes what you don't agree with, or in love to continue to hear the exhortation that comes from God's Word and to be faithful to it. 
don't despise prophecies. The redeemed community is one that welcomes the Word of God. It encourages those who proclaim it faithfully. It longs to be fed by the Word of truth. There were some messy things undoubtedly in the Thessalonian church, but he says don't despise prophecies. Don't despise the Word of God announced through people. But test everything. Again, that probably relates directly to these prophecies, but certainly it is a way of life for the Christian. We have been changed by Christ, sanctified by Christ, that we would become discerning people, weighing and testing and thinking. Not in a critical sense of the term. Not someone that everybody else is wrong but me in my wise, discerning ways. That's just self-centeredness. But to realize I can't just take life that's thrown at me and just accept everything. I need to be discerning and thoughtful. Testing everything, holding fast to what is good and abstaining from every form of evil. This word famously was translated, verse 22, abstaining from every appearance of evil in the King James. And that uh, probably was used by a lot of parents that when they were talking about dress with their children, avoid every appearance of evil. Well, there's a reason why it's translated that way. Again, we have a Greek word that's being translated two ways. But I think the larger, broader, generalized, and better translation is what we have here, every form of evil, which includes the appearance of evil. I don't mean to set that aside at all. But it's more than just that, avoiding the appearance of evil. Make sure you don't do anything that someone might interpret as evil. I don't think that's the narrow meaning here. I think generally, larger, in a larger sense, the meaning is avoid every form of evil. Run away from sin. Seek to grow in holiness. Be a discerning person who can tell the difference between the world and God's ways, between truth and and falsehood and begin to respond to that in your life that you become more and more like Christ. That's the life to which we're called. Abstaining from every form of evil. It's growth and holiness. And that brings him to the close and to this hinge pin of this entire book. Verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. We're not going to talk about those who take from this phrase the idea of total sanctification or entire sanctification. That is that you can come to a place of sinlessness in this life. That's reading way too much into what Paul's saying here. And it doesn't accord with what he says elsewhere. Paul certainly didn't see himself as having obtained this level. And I'm, for one, not going to stand in line and say I've passed him up. And and I've attained a sinless perfection in this life. There are those who say that. It's not the point. What the point is, is that we would be sanctified, made holy in a complete sense. That's described in the next idea. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're also not going to discuss here the bipartite versus tripartite makeup of man. This is, for those that are caring to keep score on that thing, are we three parts, two parts? If we're three parts, Body, soul, and spirit. This is the strongest statement, the strongest support for that view in the New Testament. But there are, I think, more compelling passages that support a bipartite view that is man is material and immaterial. He's body and spirit comprising a soul. And that soul and spirit can thus be used interchangeably, but we won't get into that debate. I guess I've tipped my hand as to where I stand. But Paul is not striving to work out a formal anthropology here. I think he could have grabbed a whole bunch of other words 
like love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, he could have put those words in here too. I want you to be entirely sanctified. That is this. Jesus didn't save you to leave you alone. He didn't save you to just stay where you are. He saved you to sanctify all of you. Body, soul, spirit, mind, strength, will, emotions. He wants to change us into the likeness of Christ. In fact, that's why He saved us. Paul is just praying that God will do what God is doing in them. He's made this clear already in the book. And so our life together as a church is to function as a sanctification project. We're being prepared in life through our relationships in the body of Christ to meet Jesus in His coming. Or as 1 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. All of life then is preparation for meeting Jesus. Do you believe that? If you do, that will radically change your whole life. All of life is preparation for meeting Jesus. What does that look like? Let's stand again for a moment under the shower of God's sanctifying power and Word. What does it look like? That life that's being transformed into the likeness of Christ, that life that's being made more and more holy, here's what it looks like. Valuing and respecting the work of spiritual shepherds in the assembly. Admonishing those who are failing to live a disciplined spiritual life encouraging people who are faint of heart, helping the weak, being patient with one another. Has Christ saved you? Is He changing you? Is He transforming you? He's doing these things in you. This is who He wants you to be. Taking on a non-vengeful orientation toward those who wrong me. Pouring out good toward everyone. Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks at all times, in all circumstances. He's changing me to one to be one who does not quench the Spirit. Who does not despise people who speak for God or reject their message. He's changing me to live a life that tests all things to determine what pleases the Lord and what does not. He's changing me to cling to what is good. He's changing me to abstain from every form of evil. That's why Jesus saved us. Just a representative list. But He saved us to sanctify us completely. Am I talking to anybody here? Are you with me? If you're with me here, you're going, this is overwhelming. I'm not those things. I fall immeasurably short time after time after time when I think of this is what Jesus wants to do with me. That's not who I am in my sin and in my weakness. Oh, do we have a great word of hope here in verse 24. Look at this word. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see what he's saying? He's not saying, you are such a faithful church. You can surely do this. No, he says, God is faithful and He is doing this. If you have been genuinely born again by Christ, He's doing these things in you. Slowly, patiently, with many failures and trials, He's changing us this way. This has been the theme of the book in many respects. Chapter 1, verse 4, He has chosen you. 
Chapter 2 and verse 12, He called us into His kingdom. Chapter 5 and verse 9, He has destined us to obtain salvation. God has done this work. He is doing this work. And you need to respond. This is a passage filled with imperatives. You are to do this and this and this. But it's God who's at work in us. Isn't that what He said to the Philippians? He began a good work in you. He will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God will do it. He is doing it. This is why He saved us. Romans 8, 29 and 30, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He chose us to conform us to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those that He predestined this way, He called. Those that He called this way, He justified. Those that He justified. You know what? Let's just, let's just put it in the past tense. He glorified. He will do it. And He will do it because He is faithful to His purposes. He is faithful to His people. He is doing this work in us as we respond in faith, in action to what God is doing. To change our affections to love what He wants us to love and hate what He wants us to hate. So at least in your mind's eye, look around you and see those that the risen Christ has called to Himself. We are being transformed into this kind of a holy people and we are to help one another grow to that end. Here's a great word as He closes. God's doing this. God is faithful. He will bring it about. Notice what He says next. Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Here's the apostle, the evangelist, the one who's deep in theology, who has been taught by Jesus Christ Himself, coming to these Gentile new converts and saying, pray for me that I'll grow. We need to change too, He says. Pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Holy, not because it's not on the lips and sensual or something like that, but it's a holy kiss because there were kisses that were greetings this is a kiss that's holy because it's in the context of the sanctified body. God is changing this body. This greeting is within the body. Greet each other as brothers and sisters in Christ as a sanctified body. When we say hello on Sunday morning, it's completely different than what we say in the world. Here, it's brother and sister in Christ. Welcome to this gathering of the family of God. How different is that? How sanctified and holy that is. I put you under oath, he says before the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We've got nothing without that grace. And notice the authority of the written Word. He's saying, listen, you, don't, you can't just read this letter. You need to assemble everybody. The whole church needs to hear this. Get them together. And by God's grace, they won't despise the Word of God. They'll heed it. They'll be changed by it. Bring it together. Heden Baptist Church, we are called by Jesus Christ then to form a distinctive community, a holy community of faith. Our fellowship together is to involve two realities that are wholly missing in the world from which we are rescued. It's a lengthy text here in some respects with a lot to chew on. But if you'll work with me for a few more minutes, let me just walk us through this. I'll be as brief as I can. 
two realities that are radically different. We are very aware of them and used to them. It's sin and salvation. That radically changes this community, identifying it as a distinctive body of Christ from the world in which we live. Sin and salvation. And this community orientation is demonstrated among us as we meet. It was demonstrated here on Wednesday night in a way that just really struck me because I was working on this passage. Here we are in this meeting, separated from this fallen world, singing these words to each other, all your anxiety, all your care, bring to the mercy seat and leave it there. Never a burden that He cannot bear. Never a friend like Jesus. The greatest poetry that was ever written, but profound truth. We're encouraging one another to live in this fallen world in dependence upon Christ with our songs. What also struck me is that there was opportunity for a number of us to share testimonies, and it was not prepared. No one said anything. It didn't need to go this way. I was struck by how many of those testimonies were people confessing their sin. They hadn't been asked to. Very freely, openly, and honestly saying, here's who I am. Here's what God's doing. And I rejoice. There's a community where we're talking about sin knowing that we're leaving it behind. You know the people who don't want to talk about sin? Those that are losing. Those that sin is overwhelming. Those that are not having this sense that God is changing me. They don't want to talk about sin. But those where you see the hand of God upon your life, not I'm faithful, I'm doing it, but God is faithful, He's doing it, we're willing to say, I am a sinner. And we're willing to see the body of Christ as an aid in growing out of our sin because we build each other up in the faith when we're honest with who we are. Sin. Radically different concept of how we look at our own faults and our weaknesses. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this, to this end. I, I won't waste your time on this. I think it's utterly worth it. Hear it. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it, is, it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. We gather in a, with a group that understands that. He goes on to say, only the Christians know this. In the presence of the psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plums its ultimate depth. The Christian brother understands when I come to him, for he is a sinner like myself. A godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. I walk in such an assembly. The psychologist views me as if there were no God. The brother views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. The judging and merciful God. Sin and salvation. Rescue from it. We walk in that world together as a church. And I would say to you, in light of this passage, if you take an honest look at your life and you don't see these things, 
you look through this passage and just say, those things are not happening with me. I am grumpy. I'm unthankful. I don't rejoice. I'm not really happy about the spiritual leadership of the church and that there's those people who care about my life that way. And I'm, I'm, I'm not using God's Word to encourage others. And in fact, yeah, I get irritated with God's Word being proclaimed all the time. These things aren't happening in my life. If Jesus saved us to do these things in our life and it's not happening in our life, we need to come to very seriously consider our relationship with Christ. He saved us to transform us into a countercultural, radically changing community of increasingly purified people. If He's not doing that, it's not because He's on vacation. You may be dead. You see, salvation doesn't come from knowing the facts about the Gospel. You could present the Gospel to the salvation of all kinds of people and never embrace it yourself. You must be born again. You must be born from above. And if these evidences of God's working, if He's not doing it, I would encourage you to seek the Lord while He may be found, to call upon Him while He's near Forsake your wickedness. Turn to Christ because there alone you will find pardon. Plead with Him for the salvation of your soul. For those of us who've been genuinely converted, look around you. You're looking at people who will someday be glorified. We're in that process together. It's to be evidencing itself in our assembly and we're to be helping each other along that line. What an amazing truth this is. C.S. Lewis brought it to really to terms when he said, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, you're seeing someone, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. To be a hideous horror in twisted rebellion against God in eternal damnation. Or to be utterly glorified and walking with Christ through eternity. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. Because there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Among this distinctive community that is growing in holiness, we're talking to people who are being transformed into the image of Christ. We are talking to people who will shine like the stars in Christ's presence someday. In light of these realities then, what manner of people ought we to be? May God be pleased to sanctify us for His glory. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we come into Your presence a needy people, but thankful for the work that You are doing among us. I pray that as Your servants, we would serve one another with faithfulness and fruitfulness to the glory of God to the glory of Your great name. 
in the salvation that's in Christ. We pray in behalf of those who know Him not as Savior that You'd bring the light to dawn upon them. For those of us who know You in this way, may we so love one another and serve one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.